Welcome to the Herd Quitter Podcast. I'm your host, Jared Lumen. On this show, we talk to farmers and ranchers who aren't afraid to think for themselves and do things a little bit differently. We hope these guests will challenge you to look at your farms and ranches in a new way and result in a more profitable and enjoyable business for you and your family. Hey folks, and welcome back to the Herd Quitter Podcast. In this episode, I actually pressed record early and started having a conversation with the guest and didn't actually have time to read our introduction. So I'm going to do a little introduction here before the episode, and then we'll just kind of hit play right into the middle of the conversation we are having there. So hopefully that makes sense. It's a little different than normal, but uh, it's a, another, <laughs> I would say, a really good conversation, definitely with the guest, uh, but uh, another one where he... Uh, uh, where I find myself out of my depth in conversation, but I, I learn a lot every time I talk to him. That's uh, Jordan Thomas. He is actually the well, his first episode, and I should have had the number of that episode looked up. Um, is the the second most listened to episode of the Herd Quitter podcast so far, behind only Alan Savory. So that's a pretty cool uh, a pretty cool statistic. That was episode number eighty. I would definitely listen back to that one. That's again the second most listened to episode, but it got a lot of discussion, a lot of questions, and a lot of conversation going, and I think that's good. That's what this podcast is about, is getting people thinking and getting them having conversations. And so I wanted to have him back on to kind of follow up on that discussion, answer maybe some of the questions that I heard from people, and um, yeah, just kind of see what uh, what uh, what he had maybe to, to say on some of those topics. So uh, that's who we're going to have on in this episode. But I do want to just take a moment here also to say a couple things. One, again, thank you uh, for for listening. It's been fun to do this for the last gosh, two years now, I think, and the listeners just keep growing and the, the positive feedback keeps coming in. And so thank you so much. I, I really do appreciate it. I also just wanted to take a moment here to say that uh, you know on our farm, uh, we've been kind of growing the cow herd for the last eight years, I think, now since I got home from college. And we are... Uh, kind of getting up to the capacity where I think we're maybe going to stop growing. And so we actually have females for sale for the first time in, in excess of what we normally do. We've got uh, quite a few, 80 to 100 plus uh, females, bred females for sale this fall. So if that's something you're interested in as a group of low input uh, bred females, um, feel free to reach out. You can reach out to me at herdquitterpodcast at gmail.com. Um, also, uh, I love the good uh, recommendations from guests or guest recommendations that you guys keep sending in too. So feel free to send any of those if you've got people in your areas, people in your uh, communities that you know that have an awesome story that you think is worth sharing. Uh, send them my way. Again, you can email me at herdquitterpodcast at gmail.com. Uh, thanks so much. And with that, we will just dive right into our conversation with Jordan Thomas on the Herd Quitter Podcast. I think that sometimes we tend to overhype the genetic merit of a female because her phenotype is is pretty strong for whatever it is that we care about. So maybe she has a really strong phenotype for fleshing ability. Um, but but I'll give you maybe the example I, I really like to use on that one. <laughs> if you have a cow that misses as a two-year-old cow, and you were to keep her in the herd as a cow anyway, that's mm -hmm. a really dumb business decision, right? Yeah. Because it just incur incurred a year of cost. 
But guess what? That cow will probably look really good for the rest of her life because she had a year belt long vacation. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and she probably put on condition that year, calved in way good condition when she finally did have a calf two years later and never really got nursed down too hard from that because she had a year long vacation. Right. So what is her visual phenotype look like? Well, it looks really good. She looks like she's a really easy flushing cow. She's probably going to have a really strong reproductive phenotype every other year. But you really know the whole picture on that animal, right? And and then you go, well, what's her genetic merit? Well, if if environmentally she was never really challenged any of those other years because she got set up with this year-long vacation package thing to kind of mm. to kind of send her into the rest of her life. It's hard to really know what her genetic merit is. It's hard to really infer that. And and I guess my my general thought is unless we go do genomic testing and kind of look at the the actual genomics of the animal or unless we know a lot about their relatedness to other animals for for which we have a lot a lot of data, we just don't actually know all that much about the the genetic merit of a female for those traits. Does that kind of make sense? So, yeah. so bizarrely, bizarrely, I mean, we get the most data on sires. We get the most data on bulls um, because they sire a whole lot of progeny and we can mm -hmm. collect all of the data on those progeny. And so that yeah. that's kind of where maybe Kit and I differ. I, I, I don't love the, the maybe schools of thought that we can learn a lot about an animal from its visual appearance or that we can sort of go, well, this cow stayed in the herd for eight years Therefore, that's a genetically, you know, uh, high stability cow. So, and, yeah. and maybe I'll just pre-record kind of an intro to this because this is already getting into this <laughs> discussion that we wanted to get into. But with that and that example specifically of the animal, I agree, you can have a phenotype type that doesn't express its genetic ability because of some situation, for example, that one getting a year off. But if you pair phenotype with a system that has a no excuse no you know like a no excuse no second chance policy of breeding this amount of time breeding 45 days breeding 60 days um have a calf every year no excuses or you're gone then that phenotype does tell a different story a little more specific story doesn't it for sure for sure in the sense that phenotypic selection does work right i mean it does work to, to select a phenotype um, that is, you know, doing its thing that you want it to be doing. So to, let's say it's a cow with a lot of um, uh, fleshing ability or something like that. It does. We know that if we place emphasis on keeping and, and breeding animals that have that phenotype over time, we do move the genotype in that direction. Right. And so if the heritability is high, which means that most of the variation comes from genetics instead of coming just mm -hmm. from management, then we move it really fast because whenever we select the phenotype, we're also selecting the genotype, right? But if the heritability is low, then it means that sometimes when we see that phenotype, it's not genetics, it's just some environmental effect, right? So, um, so that means that we move the genotype more slowly as we do phenotypic selection. So, so that's kind of what that heritability piece actually is intended to, to represent in animal breeding is just our ability to make progress in moving the genotype through phenotypic selection um, is mm -hmm. when it's highly heritable. That means that um, we can move really fast. 
when it's lowly heritable, it means that we move a lot more slowly, just because whenever we do see that phenotype, we don't have full confidence that the genotype goes along with it. So I'll give you, I'll give you the repro example, which is kind of weird. And this is a, maybe a probability way of thinking about it, but let's say we had a, I don't know, let's say we had a cow that we thought was highly fertile. And so she had a, I'm just going to use some numbers that are halfway reasonable. Let's say she, she had an 80% likelihood. So a probability of 0.8 of breeding first service, you know, breeding first service in the breeding season, first opportunity. And then let's say you had a low fertility cow and her probability of breeding up first service, um, assuming that all of the environmental stuff was the same, was instead of being 0.8, it was like 0.6. So that's not a huge difference, right? But that's probably right in terms of maybe the bio, the biological difference between those two cows. That's a sizable difference in their mm-hmm. probability, right? Mm-hmm. But that's a high fertility cow or a low fertility cow in terms of her maybe genetic merit for that particular thing. So start to think about it though. It At the end of the season, if you have a hundred cows that all bred first service, how do you know that that first service conception really was the result of her genetic merit? Well, you don't, right? Cause, cause some of those like 0.2 of those highly meritorious, if you want to think about it, females for fertility failed to breed first service, but they do in fact have the genotype to do that. Cause the probability just, just kind of worked against you and just, you know, yeah. 20% odds. She happened to not do it. But then also these low fertility females, 60% of them actually did breed first service. And that's the hard part is is whenever you get into these probability-based ways of of things happening or, or, you know, there's there's some amount of randomness or there's some other environmental stuff going on. It just makes it harder to know that that phenotype is indeed the genotype. And and that's, uh, that's why these reproductive things I think are, are more lowly heritable than maybe we're tempted to want to believe. Cause you want to see this cow that conceived for a service three years in a row and go, man, she must have elite genetic merit. But it's also true that if you flip a coin three times in a row, sometimes you get heads all three times. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that's kind of what happens with, with uh, repro things. And that's why I, I just try to, especially from a commercial perspective, try to emphasize that, you know, we don't really know as much about the genetic merit of the females that we have in production as we want to believe that mm-hmm. we do. So where does like adaptability, I'd say what we're doing and trying to do is breed genetics that are adapted to an environment. And because of that, so like this, because of that, it takes away if, if they match the environment and the environment is a big player in fertility, we're not necessarily increasing the genotypic fertility but we've allowed for the animal to have a higher likelihood of getting bred back consistently because they're adapted and i guess i know it it seems to me like it's 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 expressing adapted cows cows adapted to environment low maintenance cows that thrive in an environment even in poor environments without all the extras will get bred back more often and so yeah, like you said, we may not be affecting the genetic fertility of that animal, but we're impacting the phenotype of fertility of cows getting bred back at a higher percentage. I mean, we saw it and, you know, here that over years of doing this and selecting for earlier, and, and there's the other thing where you might say it, that I guess is earlier 
calving gives it more chance to get bred back and stuff but we've been yeah, selecting <laughs> um, and that's part of it but also if if you have a group of cows that are 16 1700 pounds and you run them like we do um you know they could calve the very beginning of our window may 1st you could get 100 cows that were all due to calve on may 1st that they're 1700 pound cows and you run them in our environment they turn them out on corn stalks with no supplement, graze them till the end of January, feed them till the ice gets too deep, feed them junky hay until the day they calve, which is what we do. And then, you know, expect them to calve and keep this calf, not throw the calf over winter or whatever. There's a high chance that they're not going to get bred back the next year, I would say. Is that reasonable? Oh, for sure. But but I think that is also maybe trying to reduce everything to fertility. And I don't think that's maybe the way I, I look at it. So, and you know, I, I don't either. I guess I, yeah, I don't think yeah. I think that there's all these things. It's kind of a whole system type thing. Yeah, no, I think that's right. So so I think, uh, you know, let's say you have a, a PCC bull that maybe makes some four frame cows and then you've got some, you know, pick your other maybe more conventionally minded seed stock breeder that makes seven front cows. And you look at those two differences and let's say one of those cows is 1600 pounds mature weight, one's 11. Um, are, are those two different beasts for sure? And they work mm -hmm. in two different kinds of production models for sure. I'm with you. I think though that there are... Um, there are 1600 pound seven frame cows out there that have been selected for high fertility in that kind of a production environment, mm -hmm. which is a little bit wild to think of, right? Cause you put them into maybe a low input production environment. You're never going to see that, right? Yes. You're never going to get that phenotype realized, but they probably do have a lot of functional genetic merit for reproductive traits. You know, let's assuming that they have had selection emphasis placed on that in that, you know, years and years of, of genetic selection that has gone into making that particular animal. There's also going to be, it, the, again, this is kind of out there, maybe a little bit controversial, but there's also going to be some four frame, 1100 pound cows that actually have really poor genetic merit for fertility, but we'll see pretty strong phenotypes for fertility if they're put in any kind of production environment that doesn't necessarily challenge them all that much. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah. And, and, and so I, you know, one, one way that we could do that, right. Is let's say we, um, oh, let's say that we provided a high level of supplementation, right? Well, that would, that would be a production environment that doesn't challenge it very much. Yeah. Um, another one would be, let's say we consistently wean calves at pretty aggressively early ages and we give them a lot of time, uh, post weaning to put on additional body condition before calving. That would be another way that we just don't challenge them very much. Another one would be that let's say they, uh, let's say that they're they've been genetically selected to be pretty low milk, and they wean off pretty light calves. That would be another way in which we really aren't challenging them that much from a uh, from a production perspective. And we just maybe aren't challenging the fertility piece of it. So, mm -hmm. so that it's almost like a seesaw a little bit where, where you've got maybe stable stability of cows, like breed back potential of cows, longevity, potential of cows, fertility, potential of cows, almost verse production ability of cows in some, in some respects. And I think you want to balance that. 
Yeah. And so I think there, there are some ways that this conversation just gets tough is, yeah. you know, you want to, you want to s- select for high fertility females for sure. Cause we get paid for that. Mm-hmm. Um, but you also don't want to strip out all of the quote unquote performance of the cows. Right. I mean, we don't yeah. want to have cows that wean 200 pound calves, no. right. E- even in a, even in a low input production environment, it's just too low. Yes. But those cows that wean 200 pound cows, they probably will have pretty good breed back performance. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, that's I I again, and I don't know how to make it sound right, but I think I'm I think I agree, and I think we're on a similar page. There's an optimum, and when the yeah. focus is profitability and not performance, yeah, you're right. It doesn't make sense to go to all focus on fertility and make sure you have a hundred percent breed back, but you wean a bunch of runts, and it doesn't make sense to go to weaning seven hundred pound calves, but you're either have a ton of cost into them or your fertility is you you have a 60% breed back, you, you got to find this optimum. And I think that's what we're trying to do here is where we're, we're seeing 90 plus percent breed back in a low input system, weaning an acceptable weaning weight. And that seems to result in the most profitable system. I just had a person on Laura from Texas a, a few week or week or two, a couple weeks ago, I think now who is saying her, you know, her cost to keep a cow a year is like $500. And and that she can definitely, she's not weaning the highest weights out there, but they're acceptable. And she's exceptionally profitable at that because she's getting a good reproductive. I mean, she's getting good breed back. She's getting acceptable weights and achieving a decent profit. And so I don't know, I guess. Yeah, it's okay. I took, I took you down a funny path conversationally from the get go. <laughs> yeah, no. No, well, maybe let me let me try to maybe clarify. You know, I think I think I really value a low input female um, because I think that lower input production models are probably the only things that make sense in mm-hmm. in large portions of the country, in the kinds of maybe hands of cards that people are dealt in terms of feed resources most of the time. There are some people that have access to just some bizarre feed resources for uh, mm-hmm. unusual reasons, and their, you know, kind of unfair advantage to use the Allen Nation kind of phrasing yeah. is going to be making use of a feed stuff that actually enables them to have seven frame sixteen hundred pound cows. And if they can do yeah. that, and that's what they want to do, you know, far be it for me to tell them they need to run yeah. something different, right? Yeah. But I think for most operations, most parts of the country, most types of feed resources, a lower input female and a lower input model of production makes makes sense more often. Mm-hmm. Oftentimes it's the only thing that really does make sense if we're really honest about about the numbers. So I think the question becomes um well how do you select for that type of a of a female? And you know, generally speaking, when we talk about genetic selection, um, we're we're going to maybe think about a few different things. One is just phenotypic selection, which is seeing the phenotype that mm-hmm. we think that we want and trying to select for that over time. That works. That does work effectively. That's all traditional animal breeding is based on phenotypic selection. It's not like it doesn't work. Uh, the other one would be some kind of genotypic selection where we're selecting um, based on uh, genotypes, and mm-hmm. and if that sounds a little bit weird, um, it's it's trying to to use some sort of more advanced kind of math to piece out the environmental piece of of what's going on, mm-hmm. 
separate that from just the the genetic piece. So that is, I know EPDs don't don't get a lot of love in in many circles, you know, in in the lower mm-hmm. input type of world, and that's kind of a shame because it's a phenomenal technology, mm-hmm. you know, it's a phenomenal way of looking at data because it it allows you because of the use of contemporary groups and 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 trying to sort out some of that just environmental component of the phenotypes we see, it allows us to make genetic progress for traits of interest way faster than phenotypic selection. And and I think if you look at maybe how fast you can move something like, uh, you know, birth weight or something like that to try to bring down birth weight mm-hmm. in, a, in, a, in a set of animals, you know, one of these, uh, I think there's papers out there where it's basically your rate of genetic progress for a trait like birth weight is four times as fast if you do a genotypic based selection using EPDs, things like that. Than mm-hmm. if you just use phenotypic selection, because what it does is it just sorts out how much of that phenotype is, is, you know, environment, how much is, is genotype. It allows you to just isolate that genotypic thing and pursue that. Mm-hmm. So it's easy to wrap our heads around those traits like birth weight that are really simple and easy to measure. Yeah. Um, and, and unfortunately, EPDs have been used to to select in the wrong direction, right? In a lot of traits by much yeah. of the industry, at least if you have kind of the mindset that, that maybe you or I do, right? It's, yeah. it's really easy to measure a trait like weaning weight. It's a trait yes. that allows you to make a lot of progress in a short amount of time because you can, uh, you know, with, with EPDs probably make progress in that neighborhood of four times faster if you use EPDs than if you just use phenotypic selection. Mm-hmm. But if that's the wrong direction to go, well, you just went the wrong direction four times faster. And yeah. so that's that's the challenge is I, I, sometimes I use this example, right? So EPDs are kind of like a Corvette, okay? They mm-hmm. go really fast. Yeah. Uh, they help us go really fast in the direction that we wanted to go. And and maybe phenotypic selection is a covered wagon. Well, you can get a lot of good places in a covered wagon, right? It's not that, that it doesn't work. It's just that it's compared to a Corvette, it's slower. It's faster than walking, but it's a, compared to a Corvette, yeah. it's slower. Yeah. And but the the philosophically, I, I guess the question is is not so much what vehicle do you want to take, it's where do you want to go, right? Do you want to go to New York or do you want to go to El Paso? They're two different places. Mm-hmm. And and so I think some of the criticism of Corvettes, EPDs, is that they've been used to go to New York. And that's not really fair criticism, right? Because you could use you could use the Corvette to go to El Paso yeah. too. And uh and so I, I do just want to empower folks to understand that that EPDs are really great tools and you can use them to go in directions that you want to, to want to go. You could you could bring down weaning weight using EPDs, right? Yes. You sure. really could. You you could also select for traits that really matter in your production model, like stability, heifer pregnancy, maintenance energy requirements, um, fleshing ability of cows. Um yes. Uh, you could you could maybe think about milk a little bit in the same type of way. Uh, we could think about, um, you know, again, all of these traits that really we think matter to us mm-hmm. um, with EPDs and make progress a lot faster than we could with just phenotypic selection. Yeah. So how do you make selection or improvements on some of these traits that have so many variables? Like, I mean, just because we're talking about fertility, like we've talked about Breedback can be varied partly by its genetic fertility, partly by its calf, previous calving date and how long it has to get back to breeding or whatever or before the next breeding window. And things like 
fleshing ability and its body condition and ability, you know, and its environment is highly impacted. So if you want to improve your, if you want to have your production system and you want to get cows that are breeding more consistently, I have a higher percent breed back. How do you select for the right type of genetics to do that? And when there's not a EPD that can account for all those variables? Well, you know, if you're a commercial operation, um, you, you don't get paid for the genetic merit of the animals. And that's an important thing to realize. You know, you get paid for the actual production at the end of the day, the actual realized phenotype of, of the performance of the animals. And so you could make an argument, right, that, you know, in some respects, we could almost, you know, as a thought experiment, ignore the idea of making genetic progress at all and just try to have a business model that makes sense from a commercial perspective and and we would make uh we could make a lot of money with the existing genetics that we have right so there's not necessarily a need to always be improving the genetic merit of a commercial herd for any trait and maybe as long as that model makes sense yeah i'm not even necessarily referring to the genetic fertility as much as the expression of fertility like of actually getting cows pregnant because you need them to get pregnant even if their genetics not proving i mean if you have a bunch of cows and you're doing more of a sell by model but in your system they never get bred and every year you're taking a cow from a bred to an open cow you know i mean you don't care about their fertility but you're losing a lot of value and depreciation on that cow because she's going from a bred female to an open female every year i mean you always want to try and get them bred back again yeah for sure and and i think that that is maybe the way that i think about it as well is you know we got to have this business model in place where we're getting good breed back performance in in cows primarily for reasons associated with maintaining the value of that cow as a bred animal that's in production as opposed to an open animal. Mm-hmm. Um, and it may be so that we can market that cow. It may be so that we can retain that cow in the, in the herd. It could be either one of those things, but we're trying not to have that big depreciation cost associated with that cow, just turning into an open cow, just like you mentioned. Mm-hmm. So, so doing that, you know, there's a lot of management ways that we can do that. Um, and so number one way is for sure going to be maintain as short of a calving season as we possibly can. We kind of talked about that last time yeah. we talked about stuff. And then, and then number two after that is going to be maintaining cows and acceptable body condition at the time of calving. So managing so that cows are at least a five, ideally more like six heifers are at least a six, uh, maybe even a tick higher than that. If we can calve animals in that condition, you know, all systems go. Um, and those are our two big things to manage. Uh, the other thing we can maybe manage a little bit is the age of the animal, because we know that that has some effect as well. So we can we can selectively try to maybe divest out of some cows at certain ages if we are going into these periods of life where they're a little bit more likely to be open just because of age. There, there's selective ways of managing those. But if we manage those two things, I think those are those are mm-hmm. those are our major ones is calving season length, body condition. And then the additional one after that is just plane of energy during the post calving to to breeding window. You know, if we can maintain cows in positive energy balance, meaning they're gaining weight rather than losing weight, um, mm-hmm. then just difficult to do in that uh, in that stretch of days right so that's not insignificant but if we can do that if we can have good quality uh you know nutrition during that particular time frame of peak lactation and going into breeding um then then that's how 
just from a management perspective, you know, we can ensure good breed up. Mm-hmm. So I think to your to your you know point, for a commercial operation, you could almost put yourself in this box of I don't care about genetics. I just want to have a production model that makes sense. And I'm going to divest out of cows that aren't working and redeploy that equity into cows that that do have a potential to work and just not even worry about the genetic merit. And and that's a great outlook to have as a commercial producer. And the reason I, I say that is not that genetics are nonsense or that they don't exist or anything like that. Obviously they do, mm-hmm. but it is kind of challenging to select for um, fertility, stability. It's, it's hard to select for the genetics of those traits because they are lowly heritable. And also, um, you know, some breeds don't have EPDs for those traits, which allow us to do a better job of, of selecting for them. So, you know, some breeds do. So if you're talking about like Red Angus or or Hereford, you know, there's some stability as what Red Angus calls it or, or Hereford calls it sustained cow uh, fertility. But, you know, so there's some EPDs for those kinds of longevity type of traits. Um, and then, you know, most of the breeds that have total herd reporting will have some kind of a heifer pregnancy type of EPD that's associated with you know, the likelihood of heifers conceiving. So we do have some EPDs to do those kinds of, of, you know, to actually impose some good genetic selection for those traits, but it takes time to realize our, our improvement in that. And as a commercial producer, what you actually get paid for at the end of the day is just, do they breed back or not? Yes. And, and so I, I I think uh, my encouragement is don't, if as a commercial producer, don't obsess too much about trying to make a genetically bulletproof set of cows or don't obsess too much about the genetic progress, you know, obsess about the business model, get the business model piece, right. And then picking bulls is actually fairly straightforward, right? And you want to pick bulls that have genetic merit for all the traits that actually matter to you. And certainly repro breed back, all that stuff is, is part of it. Um, But, but don't obsess too much about, trying to make genetics and hoping that maybe those genetics make us profitable in the future, make a business model that's profitable today. Mm -hmm. Uh, And that's kind of my simplification of it, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's interesting. I, I think I kind of mentioned, or it's funny, people reach out to me about different podcasts and I'll have like five people reach out to me about a podcast and every one of them will say, gosh, I never thought of this. And it's a totally different thing than the other person thought. And like one podcast can have a bunch of different topics and years when I was listening back I to this business model piece the one that didn't even stick I feel like what came out of last time's conversation for me was largely the discussion of calving date and how that impacts weaning weights and how that can generate you know more profit and more time for the cow to get bred back um, and then this conversation around heritability and the thing that kind of stuck out to me from the last one too that I kind of wanted to bring up again or just make sure I clarify or make sure I understood correctly that was kind of an interesting was this um, business decision of divesting out of cows that have a lower likelihood of getting bred back because of their calving date. And it was just kind of an interesting thing that I was, <laughs> I was out doing chores this morning before this, and I was listening to, it. I was like, huh, that was really interesting. But that if you have essentially these cows, then call it a 60 day window. And you got a cow due on May 1st and a cow due on June 30th. They're two very different animals. And they have a similar value right then where, you know, maybe the one due on May 1st is worth 2000 as a bread. And the one due at the end of June is maybe worth 1800. It's slightly discounted because it's due significantly later. But when you look at the value of it 
a year from now, that later one is a much higher likelihood of coming up open. And the one earlier has a much higher likelihood of coming up open. And so it's just a good business decision then to keep that earlier cow. And if you look at just the value difference between, I guess, at that later one, if she's worth $1,800 as a late bred cow and she comes up open and now she's only worth $800 and you had an $800 calf, your depreciation alone eats up that entire calf value. And so even if you do get a calf out of her, you've almost lost, you've lost more than you've gained even by having a calf. And it would have been far better to let someone else take that depreciation and sell her earlier. Yeah, I, I totally agree. And I, you know, I think the, the scary thing too, is in most parts of the country, you know, the numbers that you used of sort of the, maybe the $2,000 for the May one caber and the $1,800. So like a $200 discount for if she's mm -hmm. bred the calf six days later, most parts of the country, I hate to say that discount is actually not that steep. Uh, most most really? parts of the country, um, it, it, there's there's less of a discount than that. And I would say, uh, as particularly as you go maybe south and east, where there's so much flexibility in terms of when sure. you could calve, and maybe there's so much mismanagement of calving seasons in general, where people yeah. actually do all year round. Yeah, and like in, I I would say honestly in Missouri. Uh, the value of a of a bred cow really um regardless of when she's bred to calve is is pretty high and i would say the market probably overvalues her often um mm -hmm. and and so it it would be a it's it'd be a little harder to make the math work if every cow had an exact specific calving date and and the market appropriately discounted that because then there's no <laughs> there's no opportunity to maybe manage this so some of it's priced in maybe, especially Western states, maybe some of it is going to get priced in based on their calving date because there's only there's only so much you can do in terms of calving, you know, windows out at West. But but especially South and East, there's so much flexibility that maybe there's less discount there. But but conceptually, the way that you're thinking about it is the way that I think about it, which is I I have this value of the asset today. But it's net present value. It's it's actual value to me on the books is really a projection. And, and that projection is, well, what is it going to produce in the next production cycle? Mm -hmm. Which means um, what is it going to wean off? Um, and then what is its breed back, you know, likelihood going to be? And that breed back likelihood is basically going to allow us to calculate its value. You know, if she's if she's 5% likely to be open, then she's only has a 5% likelihood of becoming that $800 cow. Mm -hmm. uh, so her value is, you know, 0.95 times 2000 or whatever it would be if she's bred back and then add to that 0.05 times 800. And you can kind of calculate her, her value next year at, not her. Cause you don't know whether she winds up in the 0.95 or she winds up in the yeah. five. Um, but, that type of a cow you can kind of calculate the value of that type of a cow in that mm -hmm. in that sort of a way and then you'll have this population of cows that are later calving cows that are probably 25 percent likely to be open or higher mm -hmm. and and if you run the math on those you'll find that they have a lot less value yes because they're so much more likely to be open and then you couple that with the idea that those later calving cows yes. also will wean off the lightest, sorriest calf in the yeah. group. So from an income perspective, you know, yeah. just calculate it out, uh, you know, uh, uh, what is the, what is the value of that calf when it's um, X number of days younger and therefore X number of days times roughly two pounds a day lighter. Mm -hmm. 
and uh, and look up the value of what that calf compared to one that's you know heavier, and yeah. you'll see there's, there's normally even if you account for the slide and all that sort of thing, you mm-hmm. you have a significantly lower value calf. Um, so why wouldn't we have our equity? Because on the books today, they're worth the same amount, at least pretty close in the in the eyes of the market. Mm-hmm. Um, why wouldn't you take that equity out of that low value? investment and redeploy yeah. into a different high value investment yeah do you have that number do you have those numbers like it would be interesting to see just a, a spreadsheet of say you have this herd of 200 cows or whatever and a 60-day calving window and you broke them out by the first 15 days like four se- segments essentially the first 15 days to calve what's their likelihood of you know breed back what's their average calf weaning weight um and and then the second 15 days you know likelihood of breed back weaning weight and for each segment to actually show profit potential and whatnot between those four groups. Do you have anything like that? Well, yeah, I do that from a consulting perspective. I do that for some operations and and kind of help them think through some of that divestment decision. And it's amazing how, uh, how much money you can make with with that type of approach, right? Because you can just selectively divest out of some cows and redeploy that equity into heifers or younger cows or whatever other mm-hmm. type of investment you want to. Yeah. And, and it's just like managing a stock portfolio, right? I mean, you're just mm-hmm. divesting out of some, some things that you expect to have low rates of return in the next year and redeploying it into some things that you expect to have high yeah. rates of return. So um, yeah, it's, it's fairly straightforward to do. You got to make some assumptions along the way and sure. um and the more information you have, the better, because it's not just about when she calves. We also want to think about, well, what condition is she in? What's the age of the cow? Those two things yeah. also put into it. So, yeah. um, you know, the more information we have, the better. And, and that's why it's nice to maybe work with somebody to do that instead of just back of the yeah. envelope, uh, well, that's envelope cool. doing it. Yeah. But but I do, but to your question, though, um, I, I I make my beef production capstone class in animal science. I teach a senior level uh, capstone course in our division called beef production and management. Mm-hmm. Uh, and some, some graduate students will take that class as well. But in one of our labs, we actually have to go do that where we have a set of pregnancy diagnosis results and we try to project revenue for certain groups of cows and then project essentially cat appreciation cost. Yeah. And normally what you find in that exercise is about a 400 to $500 spread in the top cow versus mm-hmm. the bottom cow. Wow. That's incredible. Right. That's, I well, mean, that's, inc- yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, what's, what's a ranching for profit kind of gross margin target or something in, in a commercial cow. I mean, we, we often hope to have gross margins in the 400 range, right? We, we mm-hmm. feel pretty good about that. So to have a spread in basically gross margin of mm-hmm. $400 is crazy uh, yeah. from top to bottom cow. So, so think, think what that means if you can divest out of some of those cows that are really low or even negative and yeah. redeploy it into those cows that are really high and hopefully positive. Yeah. yeah. And, and it's interesting. I was just, the, the way I kind of found you originally was your article that I had referenced a couple of times. And there you showed like four years of losses between $175 to $220 yeah. <laughs> a cow. And the Minnesota University of Minnesota FinBin data is, shows the same thing. Uh, four years, there were, I think the best year was a loss of $146 average per cow. And it's like, yeah. And, and that, not that it, not that that would maybe make the whole difference, uh, but the the later calving cows are bringing down that average pretty significantly. <laughs> Intriguing or pretty, yeah, pretty wild. Five hundred dollars—that's way more than 
Well, yeah, that's just huge. <laughs> well, in that uh, in that class, one thing I do is I put up that planning budget, you know, from MMU extension on the screen behind me, which shows those losses that you mentioned. And like mm -hmm. you said, you can do that with Finman data. You can do that with oh Chaps, or you can do that with the K State, uh, yeah. you know, data as well. But you know, show any kind of set of producer data, and it's not to pick on those producers necessarily, but just conventional business models in the cow calf world that. Uh, if we're really honest about all costs, um, you know, often are net negative in terms of their, their, um, you know, actual profitability at the end of the day. So I, I show, I show that slide in that class and, you know, one of the first lectures I go, okay, let's do a little show of hands, you know, how, how many of you want to go back home and maybe farm or how many of you want to, um, hopefully manage a cow-calf operation at some point. And so we'll get a little show of hands and I'll, I'll go, well, What's it going to take in terms of number of cows to generate a full-time, you know, living, a full-time employment opportunity? Can you do it with, you know, 50 cows? And nobody will raise their hand and say yeah. that they think they can do it with 50 cows. What about 100 cows? And you'll get like a brave soul or two that really believes they can make it work with 100 cows. And then yeah. you go 200 cows, that gets some more hands. 300 cows gets a lot of hands. 500 cows, at least in the state of Missouri, a lot of people feel like, well, 500 cows, they could generate a full-time income. And then I go, well, do you, are you not seeing this screen behind me? Because what's 500 times yeah. negative 175, right? Yeah. I think I would rather have 50 cows yeah. <laughs> if I'm going to generate a net loss of $175. And so there's this fundamental truth there, which is when the cows are generating negative gross margins per cow, you scale up that. And what do you do? You generate losses at scale. You know, you mm -hmm. generate more total loss. And so, it, you know, it's the old three secrets to increasing profitability yeah. of anything, right? You, you can increase gross margin per unit. You can increase turnover, you know, or you can reduce overhead costs. I mean, those are your three mm -hmm. opportunities. And if you have an animal that's generating negative gross margin per unit, increasing mm -hmm. turnover, increasing scale just means you lose more money faster. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and and I think that's that's one of the real challenges of, getting people to to really focus on the business model because that's where most of our problems are in the cow calf world it's not the genetics of the animals it's the business model mm -hmm. you know the business model that we have in so many places is just it's just broken it's a mm -hmm. uh, it's a lot of theatrics that's kind of what that article is about i don't know do those university data points usually show the actual gross margin because that net loss of 200 something dollars do you know what the actual gross margin is? And I mean, the the reason they're probably surviving or still in business showing a net loss like that is is probably because they're discounting their overhead, their labor is cheaper, their land is paid for, their equipment is paid for or something like that. Hopefully, hopefully, I don't know, maybe some don't. In fact, I've talked to producers that have negative gross margins from the start where their direct cost, the money they actually spend every year in cash just to keep a cow is greater than their revenue from a cow. And that's a pretty scary thought, but hopefully most, I suppose, have a somewhat pro positive gross margin, at least I imagine. Yeah. So, so I grew up on my grandparents operation and I, I loved my grandparents and, and they're both gone now, but you know, my grandpa was born in 1919. And when I was growing up, he was still farming actively and up and down off the tractor all the time. Right. And so that was what I was raised around. I was raised around, you know, 70 cows, roughly central Missouri. And, uh, and it was a retirement type of, you know, way to stay busy and, and hopefully generate a little bit of income for my grandparents. Yeah. yeah. That's what I would grew up around. 
So I I kind of know what their numbers must have looked like, and and their numbers probably looked like generating um, some gross margin. But if they were honest about all of the costs of production that they had, uh, namely namely the depreciation on pieces of equipment, fencing infrastructure, things like that, if they were really honest about that, I'm sure they were generating true losses. Yeah. But when you're 80 something, it doesn't matter because you're probably not going <laughs> to, uh, you're probably not going to outlive your tractor. Right. Yeah. And, and, uh, and if that is the situation that you're in in life, you know, far be it for me to tell you not to do that, I guess. But, mm-hmm. but, but we, we have so much beef cow calf production in the U.S. that is exactly that story, which is these business models that aren't truly profitable. Um, because maybe they have some overhead costs associated with, um, you know, large pieces of, of infrastructure or pieces of equipment that are actually rapidly going down in value or, or slowly going down in value, but going down a lot in value. And uh, and nobody's going to replace those. Money's not being set aside to replace those. And then they maybe get handed off to the next generation. Mm-hmm. And if that next generation wants to keep it going. What are they going to have to do? They're probably going to have to pull value out of the land, which is probably the only thing that's actually increasing in value. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then uh, and then essentially mortgage that off a little bit in order to to fund this theater of cow-calf production. Right. And it's a really sad, sad thing if you really stop and think about it. And I mean, I was raised around that and and I romanticize that to some degree because it's my grandparents. And that was the mm-hmm. the lifestyle that I loved and and the, the kind of um you know, sort of the thing that brought me into cow-calf production. Um, But I think we can dream differently and we can dream more intentionally than that. And we can say, I want to create a business model that is actually functional, you know, and that actually covers all costs of production, real costs of production um, that are non-cash costs of depreciation on pieces of infrastructure. Um, Maybe it's going to make Maybe it's going to make me do things differently if I demand that, right? And maybe I'm not just going to go purchase a new dually with a bale bed and a feed box. And, and mm-hmm. you know, maybe I'm going to do mm-hmm. things differently in terms of production because I am going to realize I just can't afford that with 70 cows or, or with 200 cows or whatever that is. Yeah. Uh, and, and so, so I'm sort of rambling, but to your, to your question, no, we don't do a great job necessarily in some of these extension budgets that you might see of really articulating um, the the gross margin piece of it versus the overhead costs and helping people understand where maybe most of the problems come from. Sometimes they don't even structure the budgets that way. You know, I'm kind of inculcated in the ranching for profit kind of way of looking at things. And so I think of yeah. overhead very specifically and, yeah. uh, and, and uh, I try to think about you know, things from a gross margin analysis perspective, mm-hmm. from an enterprise accounting perspective, if we have multiple enterprises. And I like to see, you know, real land lease rates paid out, even if the land is owned and real labor rates paid out, at least on paper, if there's mm-hmm. you know, labor actually used. Uh, extension budgets often don't necessarily show those things quite as well as I would like to, to see them. Um, but what you will normally find is that if you were to, pull out some of what maybe is plugged in there from a land lease rate and pull out some of what's plugged in there from a labor cost rate, you'll find it brings that overall number a little bit closer to zero, kind of a break even at the end of the day. Mm -hmm. 
that most of the time where uh, the way that people are making this work is just by ignoring the cost of their own labor, which they're donating, and mm-hmm. ignoring the cost of their own land, which they're also essentially donating. Uh, yeah. and, and that's that's how it often gets made to work. Yeah. So, yeah, that, that makes sense. I do think that's how most people are cash flowing because when I mean, you look at that number it's like how are they still in business well it's paid for equity and something more than likely mm-hmm. but uh you kind of mentioned i think earlier that you said the difference between the first and the last calf or cow typically is like could be as much as a 500 dollars spread is that that right yeah it'll it'll i mean it could be more than that but yeah. it could also be substantially less than that it yeah. depends a little bit on on the operation sure. um and also how long the cabin season is of course yeah but even if it was just Theoretically, for this point five hundred dollars spread, you can't get you you can't get a hundred percent of your cows to calve on day one. But what's the reasonable? It'd be interesting to see even a breakdown of the first thirty days and the last thirty days. Maybe it's two hundred dollars, and that's your negative loss there. I guess you know if I mean if the first if you had an entire herd that calved in thirty days instead of sixty days, maybe maybe you could bring that that average or that that that. Uh, that number up significantly in your profitability and at least make a break even. But do you know what's the likelihood or is it, what's the average amount of cows that calve in the first 30 days? Do you know anything like that on industry, industry average or 40 days, 45 days or something? Do you have yes. a on that? Yeah. So let's put a pin in that real quick. Uh, cause, cause sure. you said something I just wanted to highlight, which is, well, you can't make every cow calve on the first day. <laughs> Uh, well, let's dream big a little bit, because um, because yeah, sure. I I you know I work with an operation out in out in California that um, breeds cows AI every year, um, and so that's a synchronization and timed AI program, and they breed all the cows um, one opportunity uh, of AI, and they because they've been doing this for years and years and years, and because they've put this kind of model in place and they know what they're doing. They legitimately will get high 60% to 80% range of those cows to conceive first service AI year after year, which is incredible, right? So I'm not saying that anybody's going to do that their first time out of the gate, but yeah. but let's say that on the average, they're around 70% of those cows conceiving first service AI. Well, those 70% of the cows will in fact calve on day one, roughly or slightly before in that ballpark, wow. right? Yeah. Um. So that operation, believe it or not, Every cow that fails to conceive to AI, um, they will they will have another round of AI three weeks later. And if they fail to conceive to that, they will sell those cows as open cows that go into embryo transfer programs. Now, that's a unique opportunity, maybe. Mm-hmm. But that's an operation that realized their potential of having an aggressively short calving season and, and made business decisions based around that so that they could have functionally, you know, a 21 day calving season mm-hmm. with the vast, vast majority of the calves born on day one, right? Yeah. Biological variation is not actually 21 days, more like 30 and they're, sure. they're not all born on day one. You get the idea, but, yeah. but yeah, basically it's first service or 21 days later. Mm-hmm. So, so it is possible to do crazy cool things yeah. <laughs> in terms wow. of managing for these aggressively short calving seasons. It really is possible. Uh, in my own herd, I will I will calve heifers basically for a single AI service and and we'll only keep heifers that that concede to AI so it mm-hmm. it is a calve all the heifers and you know a, a basically a first a first service AI opportunity and then there's no additional opportunities so that's a, a 
it's not a one day calving season because there's biological variation, but they basically calve by day one. Mm -hmm. So it is possible to do um, these really radical things. Now, if you look at maybe what traditional suggestions for people have been, there's this um, uh, 65, 20, 10 thing that people have talked about where maybe they want to see 65% of the calves born in the first 21 days, Mm -hmm. uh, uh, 20% of those calves born in the next 21 days, and then um, 10 born in the last 21 days of a 63-day calf season. Sure. Now, though, I, I suppose that's a great thing to shoot for, right? Particularly if you're starting off uh, really spread out. But I guess even in that model, my my way of thinking is, well, wouldn't I just want to sell those 10 that are bred to calf in the last 21 days and redeploy yeah. that equity into a different cow that's bred to calf in the first 21 days? Mm-hmm. So there's, there's lots of ways to approach that, but you know, there's, there's larger operations in uh, Nebraska that I'm thinking of that basically manage for a 30 day calving season by just selling cows that are bred to calve outside of that window sure. uh, and, and having a lot of heifers um, yes. you know, that, that they bring in every year. And that's, that's what I was thinking, like in our situation where we keep back all our heifers to let kind of nature select, we probably could select and replace we probably have enough females to replace the ones that are born after the first window or the first 30 days we have a high enough early percentage uh calving that we could do that that would be interesting i'm just curious this is getting a little more off the philosophical discussion how how what about the logistics of that place in california you work with i don't know how many cows they're calving out in a matter of a couple days i mean how do they do that (laughs) yeah good good question you know Several years ago at Missouri, we did this study where we looked at for a set of cows that are all bred with time to eye to calve on the exact same day in theory, what proportion of them actually do calve on any one day. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I sort of mentioned a couple of times, well, there's biological variation and, and there's quite a bit of biological variation, really. So even if they're truly conceived at the exact same day, basically through time to eye, mm-hmm. um, by the time you get out to calving, I think the most that we ever had calve on any one day was about 18% of those that had conceived. Um, so, so if you, let's say, make it real easy, we'll go through 100 cows. Let's say we did 100 cows and we got 60% of them to conceive to time day I. Well, now it's 60 times uh, 0.18. So that ends up being uh, what? trying to think if i can do my math here uh 60 times 0.18 i think that ends up being about 11 cows that would calve on any on any one day out of 100 sure which is i think most people would consider that fairly manageable yeah Uh, and so you know you add a zero to that and then you maybe don't Mm -hmm. feel like it's as manageable but that's the idea i i should also add i hopefully we uh we maybe have put a business model in place where we expect that those cows do their own job of yes. calving themselves out. Right. So, mm-hmm. so uh, if, uh, if maybe we're going to embrace this idea that we, uh, um, Oh, I don't know that we're going to calve every cow indoors and we're going to do it in the month of January. And it's a really high labor labor investment perspective. Maybe, uh, maybe we can't be quite this efficient with yeah. our short season, but yeah, no, that makes sense. Um, so this kind of, Brings me to a question that was also asked after the last episode and discussed in the PCC discussion group by a few people is the idea of sinking cows and heifers, specifically heifers early. And it was brought up the idea that sinking 
those heifers will bring animals into an unnatural heat that otherwise may not have come into heat. And then that's kind of like, like a prop, like that's showing an animal that might not be inherently fertile and giving her a chance to get bred. And that's by keeping her, you're kind of selecting for something you wouldn't want in the herd. Is that, I guess I'll turn it over to you to hear your thoughts on that question. Yeah. So this might surprise you, but I actually kind of agree. I I think sometimes when we, when we do a synchronization protocol, uh, we are going to give an animal a better chance than it otherwise would have to conceive early and, and potentially even conceive at all during that breeding season. Um, So if I were a seed stock producer and and I was a seed stock producer doing only phenotypic selection. And I was trying to make this genetically bulletproof set of animals for fertility. Maybe you could make an argument that a synchronization program um, that that does that, not all of them do, but synchronization programs that involve progestins, especially so cedar or, or MGA, uh, they tend to, to do that. They'll elevate the likelihood of those animals conceiving early compared to what they otherwise would have. By okay. inducing them to actually be able to cycle if they have not yet. Mm-hmm. If I was a seed stock producer really trying to make you know a bulletproof set of animals and do it with only phenotypic selection, maybe I would be a little bit wary of that, right? Because I I maybe want to allow some of these animals to fall out of the herd, right? Yeah. Yeah. If you're a commercial producer though, do you really think you do? And and that I think is is where I come at it philosophically, you know. As a commercial producer, I'm trying to make money. I'm trying to make a business model that makes sense. And I want to have cows, you know, conceive um, early and calve early because it makes me money. Uh, This whole idea of making a genetically bulletproof set of animals. Yeah, I guess that might make me money if that's possible to do, but it won't make me money for several years down the road. Right. And so I got to you know, I got to cash flow my way to that if I am going to make that, uh, make that progress. And then also I, I, at the end of the day, I got to have a functional business model. Yeah. So my, my suggestion tends to be, you know, make your genetic improvement, especially as a commercial producer, make your genetic improvement with genetic selection tools and, and don't get so caught up about trying to have a production model that's so harsh that it challenges the animals to the maximum so that I can have phenotypic selection pressure be maximum. Because I think, I think if you go too far down that road, you just, you will start to have a business model that doesn't make sense. And and one example of that, you know, I've experimented a little bit in my own herd with just not weaning calves because I calve in the fall and, you know, you can late wean fall born calves real late in the summer and, uh, and I'm in fescue country in Missouri. So these kinds of things maybe make more sense in my part of the world than they would in some other places, but, yeah. you know, fall calving on fescue, it, it makes a lot of sense in a lot of places. Late weaning calves can make a lot of sense in that type of model. I've experimented with not even weaning calves and allowing the cows to, to wean themselves. And if you think about that, um, you know, you're going to have those cows get nursed down. Um, they're going to lose some condition, right? You're going to maybe weed out some cows that fail to wean their calves and, and still have that calf when they, when they have their next calf and we could weed that phenotype out. But is that a business model that really makes sense, right? Is that, is that really the business model that I want to have? 
Um, because some, some years I'm going to go in and wean calves earlier than that, just because I don't have the forage resources, you know, weaning is not necessarily a bad thing to do. It's one of my management strategies. One of my tools I get to go employ to manage my stocking rate or to manage cow condition kind of adaptively. You know, if I've got a tough set of forage conditions and I have thinner cows just for environmental reasons that I normally would have, weaning is one of my management tools to go respond to that. You know, if I if I had a poor breed up in cows last year and I have a longer calving season than I want to have, I would argue a sink program that does some of these things and jump starts some cows is kind of one of my management tools I get to go employ to address that challenge. So as a commercial producer, I just view it as a phenomenal opportunity when used appropriately, just like any tool. But any tool can get you in, in trouble when you use it inappropriately, right? I mean, fire is a great tool for pastures, right? but probably not every pasture every year, (laughs) you know, we can overuse some of those tools. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's the way I think about sync programs. You know, they're actually, yes, they do jumpstart some, some cattle that have not yet cycled. And that's what they're really good at. If it's a, you know, progestin based protocol, especially, but I don't know that that should make us afraid to use them. I think it should just make us think about how we use them Mm -hmm. and, and try to understand that most of my genetic selection progress in making these quote unquote bulletproof females, even if that's my goal as a commercial producer, probably happens through my sire selection decisions. And my culling decisions and cow retention decisions are probably more just about having a functional business model. Interesting thought. Yeah. <clears throat> I didn't know. I, I didn't know what if there was truth to that or not. Or I think somebody else had commented that they didn't think that those programs, if a cow isn't already cycling, they didn't, they wouldn't bring them into a a natural heat or something, but that's interesting. Yeah. And a good point too. And how we do things perhaps as commercial cattlemen in a given year might be different than the seed stock producer trying to apply extra pressure to improve the whole herd. And just to get really, yeah. And just to get really granular for a second on the sink protocols, you know, there are some that will not um, have any effect on cows that have not yet cycled. So if it's a prostaglandin only protocol, um, that's not going to do anything to a cow unless she has the structure on her ovary that's capable of responding to prostaglandin, which is a corpus luteum. So unless she has that because she's already cycling, okay. she's not going to respond to that prostaglandin. Uh, but some of the protocols that involve a cedar or that involve MGA or even potentially those involve um, some GnRH use. If we hit them at the right time with those products, we can lift these cattle out of anestrus and and move them up so that they conceive earlier. And that's a that's really kind of powerful. So I don't know that it's a downside. It's just a really powerful thing that those things can do. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Well, is there anything else on these topics? I guess that we've talked about things that you want to bring up that I haven't asked about. Oh, I don't know. Did we, did we hit the high points? Did we get yes. too controversial? No. <laughs> no, I think, I think it was good. I, I, uh, yeah, like I mentioned to you before, I mean, this kind of conversation is definitely out of my wheelhouse. So I, I sure there's questions that should be asked that I just don't have, but I'm sure the people will let me know when they listen to this, what I should have asked and we can do it again then. So, yeah. <laughs> well, I, I will add one thing, you know, I think we get and if I, I apologize to, you know, listeners or to you, if it just seems like I'm super dogmatic or just bullish on, on any of this kind of stuff, I don't, 
I don't intend to throw cold water on low input production models. I have a low input production model, you know, and I don't intend to throw any kind of cold water on this idea that, you know, we probably make more money by having a cow herd that's really a little more maternally focused than we do terminal production focused. I I agree with that. My own herd is kind of selected in that direction. Mm-hmm. Um, I will though, just throw some cold water on, on this idea that we, um, that we can build these just bulletproof maternal sets of cows uh, and that we can get there with phenotypic selection or especially that we can get there with just visual selection for, I don't know how her shoulders set above her spine or Hmm. uh, maybe her visual phenotype from the outside. You know, there's, I just don't buy into that. And, and there's not published data on those types of things. And and you will hear people maybe uh, misquote science from, from days gone by of, of people's ideas about, visual appearance of cattle and these correlations with fertility. And they'll maybe even try to quote you that uh, a cow that has this type of shape is X percent more fertile. Um, I will throw a lot of cold water on that. I think that that is the equivalent of palm reading, but, uh, but applied to cattle, you know, of yeah. just there's some sort of swirl that goes a certain direction. And that means that she's, uh, you know, more likely to do X, Y, or Z. I don't think it's as simple as that. It'd be really nice if it was, <laughs> you know, it'd be really nice if we could select animals that way. And mm-hmm. and I don't think that that, that is right. And so no, no disrespect to those that, that maybe do believe that and, and articulate that. But if you, if you really want to make genetic progress for these maternal traits that really matter, um, you have good tools to do that in the form of EPDs for maternal traits and, and do it with your sire selection decisions. And if you're a commercial producer, you know, select sires that have a set of numbers that make sense for those traits, get them from seed stock producers that buy into that, uh, that are trying to select cattle that do that, you know, that, that they're kind of aligned with what you're trying to do. I think that's important. Um, and then I think it's, uh, it's really important as commercial producers uh, to selectively divest out of cows that just aren't working in your production model, just for business reasons, right? Uh, and and just worry maybe a little bit less about making these genetically bulletproof sets of females, but make a genetically or not genetically make a bulletproof business model. That's a, that's my argument. Sure. Yeah, yeah. No, that makes sense. I appreciate you coming back on again and sharing your thoughts. I, yeah, it's it's been good. I always expand my mindset when I when I listen to you. So thank you very much. <laughs> well, thanks. It my uh, my pleasure to be here. I don't know that I'm all that expansive in terms of my thinking, but it's fun to. To get into the nitty gritty. The Herd Quitter Podcast is brought to you by Faro Cattle Company, whose mission is to help ranchers put more fun and profit into their business. You can get more information on Faro Cattle Company at farocattle.com. And if you enjoy what you've heard on this podcast, be sure to subscribe and check us out on Facebook and Instagram at Herd Quitter Podcast or at herdquitterpodcast.com. <laughs>